0: Thanks so much for
1: joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible couples therapist and meditation teacher, George Taylor. Hello, George, and welcome to the show.
0: Well, thanks for having me here, Zach. Zach and I met when he was doing his live shows, and I really felt his commitment to uh, helping people learn how to love. And so it's an honor to be back with you.
1: And it's an honor to have you back. And today we're going to talk about keeping the love alive in a pandemic and beyond. But before we get into that, let's learn a little bit more about George. For those that don't know, George Taylor is a licensed marriage and family therapist with over 25 years of experience. He also teaches meditation at the Spirit Rock Meditation Center and believes in the power of mindfulness and communication to create more love and joy in our relationships. He is the author of a Path for Couples, which focuses on using awareness to build intimacy and break bad habits of reactivity. How are you doing today, George?
0: Well, I'm good. I was just saying to Zach, um, I did an online course and just felt the power of awareness while I was teaching that, and still feel it right now. That just the power of awareness how it can radically change our lives and help us become more loving and more creative and more connected with our partners, our friends, our family, et cetera. So it's a beautiful day in Northern California, and I feel happy to be here to share this with you.
1: I'm happy to hear what you have to say as well and to learn about the power of awareness. And one thing I wanted to just be a little bit more aware of right now is sort of the challenges that people are going through in this pandemic. Uh, We've been sheltering in place in different levels of quarantine for many months now, and all of these actions are designed to protect people's physical health and the spread of this virus. But I've been really concerned about people's mental health and the challenges and uncertainty of an unknown future, but also knowing how important social connection is to our uh, mental health. It's really challenging to find that connection right in the here and now. So I'm wondering, what kind of challenges are you seeing with your clients?
0: Well, you know, people are feeling a lot of anxiety, for sure, about all the changes. I mean, there's financial, spiritual, economic, cultural, racial, gender changes that are sweeping through our, our country, through, through our population. And those changes can be... Um, anxiety-provoking, that can make us feel uneasy. Some therapists would call these identity crises, like the things that we're used to doing, the schools we're used to going to, the friends we're used to seeing, the job that we have is now changed usually. So there's a, a massive internal and external change. And there's an opportunity to bring consciousness into all these changes, into all these things that we're used to doing, and and finding ways to be more loving, more awake, more conscious, more creative, more vital. But the downside is this: all this change creates uncertainty, and humans, generally speaking, don't like uncertainty. It's it's, it's traditional or interesting when I hear from couples in uh, calling me on the phone. I've been getting calls, you know, from couples for thirty plus years. Usually, the couple or the individual is having some change in their life. In my business, they're called life cycle changes where you know, they have a new job or a new partner or their partner got sick or um, they've moved. In other words, there's some outside disturbance that makes them aware that they need to look at themselves and look at the way they do things. So you could say that the whole country is going through a life cycle change and it's an identity crisis. It's a chance to grow and transform old patterns. But it's also a chance to succumb to anxiety and depression because of the isolation, which is actually very dangerous. It's dangerous for humans to be isolated. And I just talked to a family member who was expressing loneliness, is recently retired from his job. He's at home uh, with his wife, mostly his daughters away. So just my heart went out to him because I feel it myself. You know, there's a, a loneliness of not being in contact with the people we're usually in contact with. And suddenly we realize those relationships are like food. They're like food for our soul and actually for our bodies.
1: So I'm also feeling that as well, you know, there's the anxiety, of course, of the uncertain future. We don't know how long this is going to last, how deep it's going to go. And there's also the depression that results from being socially isolated from others. And I'm wondering what you meant when you said we want to bring consciousness into things. So once we realize the anxiety around an uncertain future and the depression of being socially isolated. How can we use the power of awareness, the power of consciousness to break out of these challenges?
0: Well, that's a very beautiful question. You know, another thing that is really common when a, a client or a couple would call me is that, the, that, that that life change I talked about, that identity transformation, it makes us feel very vulnerable. And I think, I mean, many of us have felt that just when we see our neighbors and we talk to them, it's like, I mean, my heart just is so open. It's like, oh my gosh, like I'm talking to a human. And so we get used to that um, in our day-to-day lives. And so and then when we're deprived of that, we, we feel that anxiety, the isolation. And what I'm saying about the couples that call me is that transformation or that life cycle change that's going on within them shows itself in the relationship. And that's where we can talk about awareness. Um, first of all, you can become aware of your own awareness or depression and take steps to heal that. You know, reaching out through Zoom, through phoning, walking at social distancing appropriately with masks out in the country or um, at a park, all that helps relieve anxiety physically. But what happens with the uh, clients and couples that call me is that they become more reactive, right? We all have habits of reaction, defenses that, that arise, reactivities that arise. And in these vulnerable, anxious times, people tend to be more reactive. In other words, if you're a withdrawing type, you will tend to withdraw more. If you're an attacking or blaming type or a pursuing type, you will tend to attack, blame, and pursue more. I I can speak on these topics of defenses because I'm an expert at all of them. I refer affectionately to the four horsemen of the relationship apocalypse. We have pursuing and withdrawing. We have attacking and defending. Mostly, those defenses are co- connected to, as I said earlier, anxiety, like we feel fear, we feel separate, and we lash out or we withdraw. So being aware of those patterns, it's kind of an amazing part of the human psychology, uh, Zach. you know, what happens very rarely in counseling is that people end counseling and go out and rob a bank or injure somebody, right? So somehow we finally get the sense that, Looking at ourselves, being aware of our reactions, aware of our internal world is good for us. That's why people meditate. That's why people do yoga. That's why people have couples counseling, because they sense that that awareness helps them be better people. And we could talk more about that in a few minutes, what that really means. But so when you're caught in these systems of reactivity and these times of reactivity, if you become more aware, oh, I tend to withdraw. Oh, I tend to lash out, then awareness, simply spoken, helps us to make better choices. It helps us to say, oh, I'm feeling that desire to withdraw. Oh, I'm feeling angry. I got to be careful. I don't lash out. So consciousness, awareness, mindfulness, these common words these days are actually instrumental in helping us to make better choices. And then most of us that are aware of, of these reactivities and make better choices over time, you start to feel better about yourself. You say, oh, I can heal, I can grow, I can change. And the change is not just internal, your external relationships change, Your, your relationships with your children, with your friends, with your partners, they all begin to change because you're becoming more aware and that almost automatically releases more love, more generosity, more patience, more ease. So the benefit of being aware, going back to your question, Zach, of, of your reactivities and your anxieties is you simply make better choices. You don't give in to the reactivity.
1: Yeah, I'm hearing that the anxiety is almost like accentuates any problems you may already be having in the relationship because when you do become anxious, you do more of those reactions that you're talking about, pursuing and withdrawing, attacking and defending. And I'm almost hearing that the first step towards solving a problem is being aware of the problem.
0: I I would agree wholeheartedly, you know, what I've said to a lot of couples is we all know couples who have the same conflicts for years, for decades, people in older generations. And so the the combined reactivity, the thing that's important to notice about the, the four horsemen of the relationship apocalypse, attacking and defending go together. Attacking elicits defending pursuing elicits, withdrawing, withdrawing elicits, pursuing. So the point is that, that these patterns go together, they fit together. And when we're trying to become more aware of them, then we, we can change them, we can become more open and, and more loving people. And, and that's the function, as we're saying, about awareness and consciousness. It helps us look into these patterns, which are exacerbated in these times, and it helps to change these reactive patterns.
1: So I'm almost imagining when we talk about building awareness in our relationships, we want to think about like almost three levels of awareness. We can have self-awareness so be aware of our own patterning. We can have awareness of dynamics in the relationship. And we can also create awareness about our partner and the challenges that they are going through. So let's go to the kind of the first layer first. Let's talk about self-awareness. We talked about already being aware of our own anxiety or our own depression that might be deepened by the current pandemic that we are in. But what are some other things I want to be aware of in myself in order to be of benefit to my relationship?
0: Well, that's a, such a great question. You know, I've been at a lot of residential meditation retreats myself. And what happens in a meditation practice or a, a practice of breathing, self-awareness, yoga, is that you begin to sense the actually the physical constrictions of your body, you begin to sense when your breathing is open, when your breathing is closed. And so as one of my therapists once said, let's keep it simple. There's only two things you need to think about in terms of your emotions and your physiology. That's that there's fear and there's love. So fear is a state of tension. It's a state of resistance. It's a state of holding back. Love, speaking a little simplistically here, is a state of openness, of fluidity, of motion, of of interactivity, of exchange of energy and information. So I think on a level of self-awareness, one needs to be aware of, do I feel open right now? Do I feel closed? And then the next step in that investigation is, oh, if I'm feeling open and I'm with my friend, what would I like to say about that? What would I like to share about that? How do I feel being open with my friend or my partner? And then being closed, you know, uh, awareness is, a, is an amazing tool because it invites you to ask, what am I afraid of? You know, what is it that I'm afraid of? And so you, maybe you're afraid of isolation. Maybe you're afraid of getting the, the disease, uh, COVID-19. But then, you, but then being aware, you can go, oh, uh, oh, okay. Awareness helps us go, oh, I can open to that. That's one of the great spiritual teachings, awareness teachings that I learned, was taught. I can't say I learned it thoroughly a long time ago, opening to where you feel closed. Just go, oh, take a breath. Oh, now I'm open. Doesn't mean that the fear goes away. Doesn't mean that you might still get the disease or you might still feel lonely. But somehow you're telling your body it's okay. It's okay to be aware. It's okay to open to that. It's okay to open your heart. And so truthfully, Zach, you know, my focus in my work is, is on the relational field. That is the field between people. I've been married for a long time. My wife is a therapist and a spiritual teacher at um, Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Woodacre, California. And we, we can test our self-awareness. Am I open or closed with my partner, you know, with my mother, with my child, with my neighbor? That's another testing ground. It's a powerful testing ground for the tools of awareness.
1: That's such a really wonderful shift you're describing. The first thing I'm hearing is moving from the mind to the body. And getting caught up in our thoughts, there's that phrase that, you know, anxiety is being caught up in the future and depression is lamenting on the past. And it's the mind that, of course, creates the constructs of past and future, but the body is always in the present. So first we shift from being aware of our thoughts to being in touch with our body. And once we do, we notice those constrictions. And I just love what you said, that fear is a state of holding back and love is a state of openness. And the body can almost be that gauge that tells us how open we are and how closed we are.
0: That's a a wonderful summary. You know, what I've noticed working with lots of couples, clients, friends that are on the path for couples, myself and my wife, is that that process of opening, you know, I've said and asked in big workshops, that process of opening is common to people. Many of us have had experiences where our history drops away. Our psychology drops away, maybe with a child or with a really old friend or a parent. you're just look, you're looking into their eyes and your history just drops away and you experience something like awe or openness beyond the body, openness beyond the galaxy almost, to where you're in this other state, this other state of awareness, of love, of appreciation. And those times are memorable. The thing is, is that when I ask people in large workshops, you know, 100, 200, 300 people, almost everyone has had an experience like that. So the body is innately wired for these experiences of openness, of deep compassion, deep ease, deep letting go. The body is wired for those. And awareness and consciousness are the tools that allow us to open more deeply to those all the time. And so the depths of love that are inside of you right now, the depths of creativity, of vitality are unfathomable. You know, poets and writers have been talking about this for millennia. This is not new news to the human race. The thing is, is the people that have those kind of openings have a methodology to get there, to have those experiences. And that's what's exciting about awareness, about meditation practice, about yoga practice, tai chi practice, it allows us to continue that opening process. I think I read somewhere, you know, Zach, a little sidebar is that I've been uh, in a study group, a neurodharma study group, we're studying the connections between the physiology of people, meditation, relationship, and actual brain research. And it's something amazing, like, there are as many connections in your brain as there are stars in the universe. That's how many connections are in. So if we can illuminate and inspire and transform those connections, then our whole body wakes up to all these essential states that I'm talking about.
1: So the body is innately wired for openness and deep compassion. And awareness is the tool to get in touch with that joy. And in so doing, what I'm hearing from you is the entire mind gets rewired into more joy and compassion. And so let's say, you know, I've done my meditation practice. I've gotten in touch with my own body. I've cultivated a, a bit of mindfulness in my own life. And now I'm ready to meet my partner my in my wife, my relationship uh, with that open heart. And you talked earlier about the field between people that you work with. So you mentioned uh, your own four horsemen of the apocalypse, not to be confused with John Gottman's horsemen of the apocalypse. Although they're very similar, you know. They're yeah, really... yeah. And you talked about the pursuing, withdrawing, attacking, and defending. So those are the things like we don't want, right? So what are the things we do want to create and cultivate and practice in our relationships?
0: Well, yeah, it's it's so interesting thinking about like what I what I've said to a lot of clients, uh, couples, uh, Zach, is that. Those four patterns are really signposts to our own healing. You know, one of the things that the couples tend to do is is when they call in, the person's implicit thought is, if I can just get my partner to heal, everything will be fine. And the point is, is that couples have these repetitive conflicts. You know, most couples or with your friends, you will have this, and with your parents or kids, you will have the exact same kind of conflicts repeatedly. And so an unconscious person, a person that's not studying themselves, will say, I just can't get that person to change. I can't get the other to change. And they don't realize that there's a system of unconscious beliefs, unconscious practices, unconscious habits, unconscious childhood experiences on both people's side, okay? So without that awareness of your own conditioning, your own training, the kind of reactions you tend to make, then you will tend to repeat for decades, as I said earlier. So the point is the client or the couple needs to learn that, the, say it's withdrawing behavior. I mean, I cannot tell you how many stories, when you go through a very simple inquiry process, which is in my book, um, Path for Couples, which is really like, what does your body feel like right now when you wanna withdraw? What does your, where's your breathing? What, what language are you using? Uh, what's your tone of voice? You know, What's your heart feel like? When you take somebody through that very personal and very intimate inquiry, then you realize that the withdrawing person is not numb, is not a stone. They're too afraid to talk, is the basic answer. So, why are they afraid? They're afraid because normally they got shamed or injured when they shared when they were kids. I mean, I'm summarizing thousands of vignettes, thousands of stories, uh, overgeneralizing. But the point is, the withdrawing person, if you think about that, just for a moment, think about the kids you know, the kids that are four, five, six, they are like fountains of feeling, fountains of imagination. They are spewing their inner world constantly. So that gets shut down by acculturation, by the, by the parents or the caregivers or um, school or grandparents, sort of subtly or not so subtly encouraging certain kinds of expressions and not encouraging, shutting down certain other kinds of expressions. Now, I've studied a lot of men's psychology and run the men's group. There isn't a man listening to this audience that hasn't been told, don't cry, don't act like a girl, don't be a wussy. That is shaming and acculturation behavior right there. So that's why it's hard oftentimes for a person that's gone through that, it can be a man or a woman, to, to share openly because they're afraid to. They have been injured when they were younger. So I like to imagine that if you take the path of awareness, again, with friends or with parents or your kids or your neighbors, and you start studying what is it you tend to do with them? When are you open? When are you closed? Then you can start to understand, oh, I was trained to be this way, right? So a withdrawing person was trained. It's not like it's some essential innate part of their body. No, their essential nature, their deep nature is to be alive, vital, contactful, crazy, loving, angry, sad, jealous, everything. Everything a kid is. That's who we are. That's not rocket science. So if you could teach the couple that the withdrawing, et cetera, or the pursuing is a symptom, And it's a symptom that's pointing towards a deep healing in themselves. then you've completely rerouted their psychology. You've completely rerouted their inquiry. You've completely rerouted their idea of who has to change. And once a person starts changing themselves, the relationship automatically changes because you're not caught up in the same behaviors that hook into your partners. That's what's an amazing um, realization about what you can call field theory you know that going back to your statement about the field the field is that interaction a subtle interaction between two people or three people or a family even a baseball stadium has a field but the point is is that when you change your field become more aware of your field inject more openness or more consciousness or more forgiveness into the field the other person indirectly or directly feels that so that that's a kind of an extended answer to the question of you know watching your repetitions trying to open to the field noticing when you're closed and using awareness to um, summon up these deeper essential states of love joy and compassion
1: so i totally agree with you in sort of all the ways we become indoctrinated by our culture but also all the ways past conditioning doesn't serve us in our relationships perhaps conditioning from society or conditioning from our parents and i I think it's interesting that your segue into that idea was that we always want to change things about our partners and we think, oh, if only my partner did this or understood me or healed, then our relationship could really work and blossom. Now, would you say that is almost like another signpost to the healing that we need to do? Like when we notice certain things you want to change about our partner, is that actually a signpost to certain things in ourselves that need healing?
0: I used to have this more idealistic version of of um growth and transformation. It's like, well, I just need to work on myself and and let my partner be and, and just let her be, in this case, Deborah, my wife. But no, we all want our partners to change. Let's be honest with that. Of course we want our partners to change. We don't like the feeling of our own reactivity. Like our reactivity causes us pain, it causes us anxiety, it causes us loneliness. So of course we want our partner to change. The problem is The way that we try to get our partners to change just doesn't work very well. You know, I refer to it as emotionally inefficient. Think of all the things you've asked your partner to change over the years, or your friend or your mother. It doesn't work very well, right? There's a kind of an inefficiency because it's a complaint. Whatever you say comes across as a complaint or a judgment. And then they're like, yeah, you want to judge me? Well, I'm going to judge you. Or I'm going to defend against that judgment. So you've got a subtle attacking and blaming. So your question is great because the desire to change your partner is a signpost that something's not right. And yes, it would be great to talk to your partner and and say, hey, would you put the toothpaste cap back on straight? Or would you park in the garage in a way that I can get my car in? Of course, we make requests of the other person all the time. But I go back to the, the central principle. The best way to change the relationship is to change yourself. So yes, Thinking about how you want your partner to change is one step, but then if you go back to the model I was suggesting, the reason you want your partner to change is not really about them. It's about yourself. It's about something they do makes you feel uncomfortable, makes you feel angry, or makes you feel lonely, or makes you feel anxious. It's because you have that inner, uh, you know, in our business, it's called ego dystonic. You have these uncomfortable feelings. That's the only reason you want your partner to change. If you feel good, you don't need them to change. So it's trying to understand, again, like, huh, what does this feeling remind me of? Oh, I was anxious when my parents divorced, or I was anxious when my sister uh, drank too much. So there's some internal experience that is generating that uncomfortable feeling, and that uncomfortable feeling is something you were trained to feel, basically. So you can heal that. You can change that in the way I was saying. But yeah, we want our partners to change. Um, I just don't think we go about it in a way that works.
1: I love that phrase. The way we try to get our partners to change is emotionally inefficient. And a huge part of that is because it does sound or often sound like criticism or like complaining. And when we hear our partner or when we hear ourselves being criticized, of course, we might withdraw, become defensive.
0: Well, you know, in couples counseling, when I'm going through this inquiry process with people. I'm always trying to go through this little drill. Okay, what does that remind you of? What does your body feel like? Do you have any associations from childhood? People can't always remember some epiphany from childhood, some terrible thing that happened, but they can begin to understand their own physiology and their own reactivity and talk about it in a different way. I've said to many couples, you know, we never had a course in this in grade school or high school. I had a lot of world history, right? But I didn't have much in what does my body feel like and how do I talk about that? And the thing is, when people learn how to do that, and they're, you know their partner's often listening, or, or I'm listening if it's individual work, I, I must have heard 500 times, I never told anybody that. You know, there's these deep stories that we hold in ourselves, which are controlling us, which are creating these reactions. And somehow, in this wonderful magic of relationship, when you reveal that story, you heal parts of it. You, you are less attached to it. You know, in 12-step, in, uh, some of you are, I'm sure, familiar. We're only as sick as our secrets, right? And what you reveal, you heal. So there's some innate wisdom that we understand that when we can go from the symptom to the body, to the memory, to the training, then we reveal something deep about ourselves. In the book, I call that self-disclosure. You know, you, sometimes you get chills listening to people tell these amazingly deep stories, and then they go, you know, they're trembling, they're crying, they're, there's so much vitality in the release of energy. And that's what's emotionally efficient. You know, I can't tell you how many partners say, I never knew my behavior affected you so deeply. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's such a powerful statement, because the partner has to take in Oh my God, my stupidity, my forgetfulness, my not putting the toothpaste cap on, my tone of voice, my eyebrow, it has an emotional impact I knew nothing about. And because people love each other, they're like, I don't want to do that to you, right? So revealing yourself leads to understanding, understanding leads to empathy, empathy leads to change of behavior. That is emotional efficiency. That's how you get your partner to change, not by judging them.
1: So beautiful. The deep stories we hold in ourselves control us. And when when we reveal that story, we heal. It's so true. And I'm wondering, how do we encourage that vulnerability? You know, I'm sure even in your couple sessions, you might have people they've been together 10, 15, 20 years and then suddenly through your encouragement of a safe space in the couple session, you know, an intensely vulnerable emotion comes out or even like one person might even drop a bombshell on the relationship that could have been shared, you know, many years prior, but there maybe wasn't that safe space for it. So if what we reveal, we heal, how do we find the courage? How do we create the space for vulnerability to happen in our relationship so that I feel safe to share something and also my partner feels safe to hear it.
0: I wasn't a couples counselor for too long before I realized that that most of what we're trying to do in couples counseling is build up the feeling of security, to build up the feeling of trust. And so just want to make a couple of quick statements about trust. One is trust is not a steady state. Okay. It changes in all relationships. You know, your friend forgets to pick you up when you're going out, you know, for coffee or a painful thing I did to my sister accidentally, you know, it had to do with estate planning of all things. I misunderstood her. I, I wasn't conscious of her. She was able to bring that up to me because of the length of our relationship. She trusted me. I was able to say, oh my God, I'm so sorry that happened, you know? So she told me about her pain and I was able to receive it. That's not always the case. You know, sometimes we hold our hurts in and you start to notice how those damage the relationship right? That you want that open flow. So um, how do you create that trust? How do you create that security? Briefly, in couples counseling, what I tell people is that there are two ways to create security and trust in couples counseling or in your relationship. And, and it's really important to remember that trust is not a steady state. You can damage the trust accidentally. Your, your friend, your, your parent can accidentally damage the trust without some kind of healing process, that damage lasts. That damage lasts. So uh, briefly, what I've said, it's in my book as well. You need to have intentions about how you're going to conduct the relationship. You know, One of the intentions that I hold in my deep relationships, not in casual relationships, not in work relationships, but one of the intentions is I want to be responsible. If somebody says I've injured them, I want to be responsible to that. I want to say, oh, okay, here's what I was thinking, here's what I did, here's what I could have done better, okay? So one of the things that's key is having an intention of creating trusting, clear, open relationships, and that requires a kind of vulnerability, authenticity, and honesty. So I've noticed that the people that I have that open door with, I tend to get closer to. If I'm with somebody, I feel protective. I don't trust them. There's injuries in the past I haven't been able to clear or behaviors keep happening. Then I start to pull away. I think it's a natural human process. So there's the level of intention and there's very important intentions. I'll just go over quickly. Uh, One is I want to create a safe, loving relationship with you. I've said that explicitly to some of my friends, family members, certainly to my partner. I want to have a safe loving relationship. So we're on the same page. That is a shared intention. Another intention I just mentioned is to is to be as vulnerable as possible, as vulnerable as you feel safe. So then the second part of that trust building practice is you have to be able to notice and change your behaviors. You know, if you say I want to trust you and you keep blaming them and you keep withdrawing from them or you keep attacking them or you keep pursuing and withdrawing with them, well trust is going to dissolve. It doesn't increase the four horsemen of the relationship apocalypse it descends it, it lowers so the point is that creating safety in your relationship requires conscious intention spoken or unspoken and it requires you to be more available to be open about yourself you know normally the things that we do that hurt each other are unconscious behaviors uh, often driven by conditioning like we've been talking driven by our training our fears or often by the cultural situation, the pandemic and the anxiety. I get really nasty when I'm hungry, you know, when I'm tired. So there are conditions that drive us into making unconscious reactivities. And if we're aware of those and try to share those with our our friend and we go, I didn't mean to be like that. I could have been better. Then there's a vulnerability even in that sharing. There's a vulnerability in that opening. So your question is an important one, Zach, because I think it extends to all relationships you know, with your parents, with your neighbors, your partner. So you, you have to have the intention of creating safety and love, and you have to follow through and, and open to that, be open to that. You know, maybe because I'm getting older, but I'm just saying I love you to a lot more people. And I notice how it, it makes me feel really open uh, to them. And, and it's true, you know, it's true. So So another methodology I'm just realizing as we're talking is to be more positive with people, more open, more complimentary, more loving, more blessing. And to say those simple things, I love you, I care about you, I want the best for you, I want you to be healthy. So that that opens up that channel where the two of you can, can kind of rest in positive
1: feelings. That is such a powerful affirmation, just saying, I want to have a safe and loving relationship with you. I appreciate you also emphasizing that we have more than one intimate relationship you know, in our lives. We have intimate relationships with our friends, with our family, and of course, with our partner as well. But all of those relationships, we can bring love into. So you mentioned two ways to create security and trust. And the two ways almost remind me of what are sometimes described as the two wings of spiritual awakening, wow. our attention and our intention. So we have an intention for authenticity, for honesty, for safety, for vulnerability, And then we have our attention on our own behaviors and being able to notice the change and growth that we have to go through. And I know in your book and in your teachings, you talk about relationships in of themselves of being a spiritual practice. And I wanted to kind of hear more about your perspective, particularly because you come from a bit of a mindfulness Buddhist background. And I know Many religions and spiritualities are rooted in kind of like an asceticism or a monasticism, where you might take vows to be celibate and, and often being an intimate relationship with another person is not seen as part of the spiritual practice. But many of us and many listeners and people particularly in the West are interested in having an authentic spirituality and to maintain loving and intimate relationships with others. So I was hoping you could just tell us about what it means to have a relationship as a spiritual practice.
0: It's so its so interesting that you would ask that because as I was getting ready for a conversation today, Zach, I was looking at uh, some of the emails we exchanged and I looked at that term relationship as a spiritual practice. I was like, yeah, what does that really mean? <laughs> so so I think, think it it sounds a little esoteric to me. You know, it's like, I don't want a spiritual practice. I just want to connect with somebody. So um, I'm going to break it down, and well, let's say less spiritual uh, terminology here. You know, I, I live in Marin, and um, as you can imagine, I've seen all kinds of spiritual practices in my office. Okay, you know, Buddhists with Hindus. I've seen agnostic with Wiccan. I've seen I've seen Catholics with Jews. So there's this background of diversity in these traditions, and oftentimes they say. Oh, we don't have the same. We don't have the same tradition, so we have lots of trouble. And and I go, okay, that's that could be true on the level of practice, on the level of of going to what church on Sunday or Saturday or Friday, whatever day you go. But I think that, generally speaking, a spiritual practice, and it could be psychotherapy, it could be shamanism, it could be meditation. (laughs) I'm I'm trying to summarize like ten thousand books (laughs) I've I've read here,
1: and that's tough, right? (laughs) But the
0: point is, is that is that most of these practices are rooted in a belief system that there is acculturation, there is training, there is habit forming, and that there's a deeper part of our soul, a deeper part of our vitality, a deeper part of our heart, which can be engaged if we pay attention, You know, if we meditate, if we do shamanic practices and fast, or go out into the woods and meditate for a long time. So there's a general agreement among spiritual practices That there's some methodology that will take us deeper into ourselves. And that's what I was trying to say earlier. That inside the body is where the universe is. And most spiritual practices, you know, capital letters, take us there through some channel, through some whether it could be chanting, it can be fasting, like I said, it could be devotional practice, it can be meditation, it can be yoga, it can be extreme sports. You know, pick pick your poison. But the point is that most of us sense, most of us listening to your show, most of us that have done uh, some kind of yoga or inquiry or therapy, sense that deeper part of ourselves, and we want to develop it. So when I think of spiritual practice, I think I think it's it's simpler to describe who is the person you think is inside you that you want to become. And I think that is a sacred quest. I could use that terminology. That's a sacred inquiry. Who is that person that you want to become? Because for one thing, that's a lifelong question. You know, we're not going to get to the end of the show and go, hey, Zach, I got it. I'm cool. I'm now the the greatest essential person I've ever (laughs) ever wanted to be. I'm good to go. I don't have to talk to anybody ever again. Well, no, there's a process that we're all going through. It's called life, L-I-F-E, life. And you can either choose to operate in that life in a state of unconsciousness, reactivity, habituation, and basic stupidity. Or you can say, Hey, let's wake up here. Let's wake up as a family. Let's wake up as a community. Let's wake up as a podcast. And that waking up, as I said earlier, is not rocket science. We sense inside of ourselves, we can feel more at ease. We can feel less judgmental. We catch ourselves, you know, commenting ad nauseum about the political situation. And we go, Isn't there anything else I could think about? That's called awareness. That thought is called awareness. And so, awareness is going to take us deeper and deeper into the body, deeper and deeper into these essential states. And, you know, there's a lot of different terminology that I'm using, essential states. So to keep it simple, generosity, compassion, awareness, forgiveness, ease, love, kindness. Isn't this what we all want? And so a theory here, which I'm operating under, is because awareness, because mindfulness has no limit, there's no limit to how aware you could become of the world, of, of all the, the gladiola that's blooming right now outside my window, of, of my own desire to serve people through this podcast. There's no end to that. You know, it's like a, a fantastic painter that can keep developing an, an art approach to life, let's say. So awareness can take us deeper and deeper inside of ourselves. And I'm pretty sure, I've never read a real study on this, that there's no depth ending. There's no ending to the depth of compassion I can develop for the world or for the people that have lost their jobs or you know the people that are struggling being homeless. There's no end to the compassion, the love, the comfort I could offer these people. So all that is inside the body. And all that is the function of a spiritual practice. It's to awaken our own awareness and then to change our own behavior so we can actually be more like the vision that we have of ourselves
1: hmm. I feel like you just like summed up spirituality in just a really beautiful way, and that it's a methodology that can take us deeper into ourselves. Maybe deep in ourselves, we find the divine, we find a connection to an external divine, so many ways to get in touch with that dimension deeper within ourselves and many paths. But of course, we find that generosity, compassion, ease and kindness and no. Limits to how much we can bring kindness and care and compassion into our lives. That's so beautiful. And, you know, we are running a little bit low on time. I don't know how it happened. So I want to jump real quick to your book and then also to my final question, because in your book, A Path for Couples, 10 Practices for Love and Joy, you have 10 incredible practices that any couple can bring into their relationship. We don't have time to go through all of them. So I'll just ask you, which practice uh, do you find yourself using the most?
0: Let me give a tiny bit of background first. You know, when when couples come in to see me or clients come in to see me, uh, let's say particularly couples, as you asked about the practices for couples, they're in what you could call a negative spiral, right? They're feeling very sensitive to each other, vulnerable, resentful, isolated. I can't tell you how many people have, have said everything causes a problem, right? I ask about the dry cleaning and all of a sudden we're arguing. Well, again, it's because of the anxiety and the vulnerability. But the, but the conversations are revolving in this negative cycle where you feel more vulnerable, more anxious, more separate, more resentful. And then that gets fed back into the relationship. That's no fun, just to keep it simple. So I think couples need to create what I call a positive spiral, a positive spiral. And it doesn't mean not recognizing that there's problems in a relationship that need to be healed and addressed, but it means that there has to be a way to create positive energy. Okay, so there's, there's two or three practices in the book that actually create that positive energy. So I'll just say them briefly because they're all equally valuable. One is, like I said earlier, to have intention. Intentions in generally bring people together. When you say, I want to have a safe, loving relationship with you, it's very uncommon that the partner goes, that's a bad idea. So intentions inherently bring people together and start to rebuild or recreate the relationship in a positive realm. Another uh, positive practice, again, which tends to drop out when people are feeling angry and resentful, is is appreciation. You know, love is expressed through gratitude and appreciation. So if you make a conscious effort to appreciate your partner, to feel grateful for your partner and make that verbal, you start creating that positive spiral. You start creating that spiral of positive feeling, which is in, usually needs to be replenished by the time people come in to see me. And, and the third practice, um, I describe a real simple breath meditation, a five, 10-minute breath meditation. People can do yoga together, go on quiet walks together, thai, do Tai Chi together. But to rebuild the relationship, our physiology needs to be rebuilt. And one way to do that is to relax and meditate together. It lowers the anxiety level and helps you remember, oh, yeah, I'm in this relationship. I want this relationship to work. We're starting to build that positive spiral. And I do want to say, again, that that positive spiral, it has no upper limit, right? You can create more positive energy, uh, which is the love, the compassion, the ease. And you can can keep building that through these very basic practices. You know, my wife and I are still doing all these practices after almost 40 years. And I think we're still feeling, I attest to the fact that we're still feeling the openness and the compassion and the vitality that can arise by continuing that upward spiral. It's like looking up, you know, at the Milky Way and going, where does it stop? It doesn't stop anywhere. That's the potential of these positive practices.
1: Such a beautiful image, just creating a positive spiral in our relationships. So I heard you say, have intention. Everything comes down to intention, doesn't it? Have intention, express love through gratitude and appreciation. And then to breathe together, to meditate together, to relax together. And that final step or that third practice you mentioned, I feel goes way back to a question that came up earlier around anxiety and the more anxiety that people are feeling in relationships and it's such a good prescription is that well if you're feeling anxious relax breathe go for a walk and these are things we can of course do with our partner in order to increase the connection so those are such beautiful easy and simple methods to bring into our lives
0: well zach you know one note on that i have friends you know that are sheltering in place by themselves it's extremely difficult it's extremely painful. But given what you just said, I want people to know that there's plenty of online meditation courses. Um, You can go to spiritrockmeditationcenter.org, something like that, or your local Zen center, because there's lots of dance classes that are online now, yoga classes, meditation classes. And if you stick with it a while, you start feeling a sense of community. You know, community is one of the great healings. Uh, Connection is one of the great healings for anxiety. So those are some suggestions. A lot of you have already thought of those things. But just want to note that for those of you that are feeling isolated in the sheltering in place, and my heart goes out to you, it's not easy.
1: I very much appreciate that you're pointing that out. There are still ways, of course, to connect with each other. and A lot of it's online, though, but it is still a good way to connect. So I'll close out with a question I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love?
0: Mm, Wow. Well, I've been lucky. In my own relationship to be married to somebody that was on a spiritual quest from the time I met her, a quest to transform and to heal herself and by extension heal me and so I feel like I represent somebody that has had the experience of having had a difficult childhood with my own injuries, my own wounds and what Deborah and I have said to a lot of a lot of people in workshops If we can heal, anybody can heal. (laughs) So I I attest to the fact that love, the love you feel that's inside you is there. The healing that you feel is inside you is possible. And you will find a teacher, you will find a method, you will find a practice that works for you. You know, I I can't remember, it might be St. Francis or Kabir. It's the intensity of the longing that does all the work. So if you give in to your desire for healing, for love, or creativity, and give into it in a healthy way, in a positive way, then your life will transform. Consciousness is working for you, and you can always find a way to heal, and a way to grow, and a way to become that essential vision that you hold for yourself.
1: Mm, what a beautiful and hopeful message. Anyone can heal. We all have love inside of us, and it's very possible for us all to get in touch with it. Thank you so much, George. For those of our listeners looking to learn more about your amazing work that you do in the world, what's your website? How do people get in touch with you? And do you have any offerings you want to talk about?
0: Well, thank you, Zach. You know, www.pathforcouples.com. That's the name of my website. The book is the same name. And um, I do occasional free online courses. Of course, I do couples counseling. And you can go to the website. There's articles there you can read about relationship. And you can email me off the website if you want to follow up uh, for sessions. And I look forward to speaking to those of you that are moved to contact me.
1: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, George, for coming onto the show and for sharing your wisdom. I know I learned a lot just in this short session with you. And I hope our listeners learned a lot as well. So thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you remember to create a positive spiral in your relationships of love and appreciation and gratitude through setting the intention to cultivate authenticity in a safe and loving space in all of your relationships. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to learn more about me, you can go to ZachBeach.com and learn more about the show at TheHeartCenter.com. Thanks again, George.
0: Zach, thank you so much for having me. I I really appreciate the way you can summarize and ask questions. It really helps kind of guide me, and I'm sure it helps guide the audience. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.